being an entrepreneur is a struggle and it's a, it takes your whole body and soul and mind. Uh, so like pursue something that really matters and don't, don't waste it. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Coffee Potters, I am so excited to share this conversation with you. One of my favourite roles that I get to do on a regular basis is being the chief interviewer for the City of Sydney's Visiting Entrepreneur Program. I get to ask questions of some of the world's most amazing entrepreneurs that the City of Sydney bring to Australia to infuse the Sydney entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem. Last week, I had that privilege with Matt Brimer. Now, Matt's the co-founder of General Assembly. Many of you listening will have done General Assembly courses. They're one of the largest educational providers in the world. Uh, Many of you will have read about them early this year because they sold to ADECO for $413 million. In this conversation, Matt and I really delve into the entrepreneurial journey he's been on, not only with General Assembly, with Daybreaker, one of his more recent ventures, and with the venture capital fund that he started more recently. We talk about uh, what ideas get cut through with funders. We touch on the, the struggles and the challenges of entrepreneurial moments. We talk about the keys to building community, which Matt has done so consistently, uh, successfully over the course of all of his entrepreneurial businesses. And One of the things I love about this conversation is how reflective and practical Matt is. I think this is truly one of the most pragmatic conversations we've ever had for the entrepreneurs listening and for those who are thinking about how they go and implement ideas. I'm not going to take any more of his thunder. I can't encourage you highly enough to listen to this one. Here's Matt Brimer and with my thanks to the City of Sydney and to Matt for allowing us to share this audio. Look, I'm thrilled to be here in conversation with Matt Brimer, and I just want to take a moment to uh, give a massive shout out to the City of Sydney uh, for the Visiting Entrepreneur Program. I think it's a phenomenal initiative bringing the ecosystem together in this way, uh, combining in, uh, I know many of you here are from the entrepreneurial community, number of students, number of people from academia, as well as the business community. Um, bravo to all involved, and, and thank you for putting this program together. Now, Matt and I have been chatting uh, out the back. Most of you will have read about this man. He's had an extraordinarily prolific entrepreneurial career for someone so young already, my friend. When I read a bio like yours, I I think about you having to have been one of those kids that was out running the lemonade store at four and then was running the garage sale at five and six and was always kind of hustling and finding these entrepreneurial opportunities. Was that the sort of kid you were growing up? Uh, You're close. Um, I was less entrepreneurial, I think, as a kid, and I was more of an inventor and a, a tinkerer. Okay. Um, so I used to take, as a kid, I used to, um, one, of my, one of my loves was taking apart old electronics. So, you know, my parents would bring home, bring home fax machines and monitors and telephones and VCRs that had broken. And uh, my brother and I would have our little set of screwdrivers and pliers and just like take them all apart and try to figure out how they all worked. And of course, we never put them back together, you know, <laughs> except to maybe like make fantastical machines that worked in our imagination. But, but you know, very much about like, exploring, tinkering, wanting to understand how things worked, and then trying to invent new stuff that, you know, at least worked in our imagination, even if in not, uh, 
in real life. So if I'd gone and met a young Matt, what would he have told me that he was going to do with his life? What did he want to do? Be an inventor and an astronaut. An astronaut. Nice yeah. double. I like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. So. I went to space camp in fifth grade. I had the opportunity to do that, and it was uh, as like a huge Star Wars and Star Trek nerd. It was the highlight of my youth. <laughs> Uh, and it was great you know and then and then growing up I found it like to be an astronaut um, you have to have naturally 20-20 vision at least uh, in the American space program and um, I didn't so had to you know move on to other pursuits so is that a hop step and a jump from space to sociology (laughs) join that gap for me yeah um, you know honestly um, I think in another life if my sort of middle school and high school education had been different, I might have ended up studying, you know, the hard sciences, going to physics or astronomy or something, um, and pursuing something there. But there was this interesting thing where I was, you know, I was reading books about black holes and quantum mechanics and all this stuff, you know, string theory as a, as like a kid, you know, elementary school, middle school, and just like diving into that. Um, but then by the time high school rolled around, how science was taught, at least in, in you know, my schooling system, it felt like it sort of lost this, the inspiration, like it didn't have the inspiration, didn't have the soul, it was sort of mechanical and rote, and it just didn't, um, it didn't inspire me to kind of like look to the stars, so to speak. And so, you know, my interest sort of wandered and expanded into other things, and um, and sort of found uh, people and communities and societies and cultures fascinating. And so I think took my sort of secret inner mad scientist and started thinking about like, all right, well, how does the world work? You know, space is still fascinating. I'll always look up at the stars, but like, this is the planet that we live on. Here's where we're at. Like, how does this work? And what can we, what can, what can be done to move this planet forward? So was that educational experience part of what inspired you with what you then created at General Assembly? Was, was that something you intentionally set out to try and correct almost in that? Uh, it certainly played a role. Um, you know, it certainly, it certainly was a part of my, my thinking. I mean, for me, you know, growing up, my parents always valued education, um, and I always valued learning and education, and, and um, you know, it's an important part of my life. Uh, you know, I went to Yale for undergrad, and um, actually after, after graduation, after my, the, the team-based gaming startup um, that was mentioned earlier, uh, after that completely failed, that didn't get acquired, just completely failed, ran out of cash, had to let our own few employees go, tell our investors, we blew it up, you know, it was not a fun experience. But I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and to and sort of take the lessons learned and do something bigger and better and hopefully more successful. And recognizing that sort of the failure of a creation, the failure of my creation is not a failure of me, the human. Mm. You know, that you can create things. And being an entrepreneur and being, you know, being an inventor, you're always trying experiments and creating stuff. And you just have to go in knowing a lot of this stuff isn't going to work out, but the, but the act of doing the experiment is worthy. And there are learnings along the way. And every, all those learnings and the experiments allow you to improve and generate better and better experience moving forward, you know? But anyway, but what I was going to say was uh, when I, had a, I had a part-time job as a way to bring in some income right out of school where um, I was doing some consulting work for Yale, helping them on their sort of digital educational programs, right? So this is 2009. Uh, so prior to Udacity or Coursera, or one of these, you know, sort of massively multi, uh, sorry, massively open online courses, um, and you know, this is Yale, right? So a big, kind of stodgy, three hundred year old educational institution. Um, you know, their idea of the future of education was uh, is like, right, we're going to sort of open up the ivory tower and allow our best courses and professors to be sort of accessed by anyone in the world. 
and um, I was, you know, trying to sort of help guide them in the right direction as much as I could. Um, and what that, what they, what how they were doing it was, uh, they were filming, they were taking cameras and filming the back, the back of lecture halls, and filming, you know, the whole course, which would be like thirteen course sessions, each lecture probably an hour and forty-five minutes. And they weren't even putting these things up on YouTube. You actually had to download like a 700 megabyte video file, which of course, like how many people do you think downloaded 13 700 megabyte video files and watched them just to complete the course? This many. Yeah. Um, and so, and so it was part, part of you know, the, the sort of impetus for General Assembly in the back of my mind was, all right, education is like one of the most powerful and transformative things that we as humans have invented to empower and enable people to pursue their missions and their, their, their greatest dreams, and yet we're not totally doing it right, and there's some things missing and some things we can improve, you know? So it was sort of on the heels of that that, um, that led to, you know, some of the inspirational ideas behind beginning General Assembly. So you, uh, I want you to take us to kind of the early days of General Assembly. You talk yeah. a lot about the importance of knowing what your goal, your mission is. Yeah. Day one looks pretty different to what General Assembly turned out to be. Can mm-hmm. you talk to us about where you started in terms of the mission and focus? So, you know, I think contrary to popular belief, um, most entrepreneurs don't really know what they're doing when they're first starting. You know, this idea that you have the grand vision early on, you write it down, and that then, you know, five or ten years later, you know, that is what manifests and the rest of the world gets to see that genius vision that was codified from the early days. Um, that's typically not how I've, my experience, not how it works. You know, there's lots of uh, evolutions of the idea along the way and you try some stuff and see what works and see what doesn't work and you have to do more of what works and less of what doesn't work. Um, and with General Assembly, you know, the, the initial concept there was to create a uh, the original vision, the vision 1.0, whatever, of GA, was to create a physical hub and sort of an urban campus uh, that could basically foster and create a community for the greater ecosystem in New York around technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Right, So a physical place, creating community, focus on design, technology, entrepreneurship. And that was kind of like the vision, the vision right? Uh, and we said, okay, well, we'll do that by sort of having three parts of, of, what, of, the, of the business, right? Th- three kind of parts of the product. Uh, one was co-working. So at the time, 2009, 2010, there was actually no co-working spaces focused on startups in New York City. Wow. Um, there were office, there were sort of office rentals, right? But there was no kind of like open plan, shared communal workspace focused on startups in New York. It's really the first one. And for a good few years, we had more startups headquartered at General Assembly than any other location in New York City. So it was like high density. But anyway, so, so co-working for startups. The second pillar was uh, social community and, and real camaraderie, right? So getting people to like put down their phones, put down their professional facades, and just be people and form friendships and, and sort of rely on each other and be sort of this greater familial environment, right? Because being an entrepreneur is difficult and a pain and can be emotionally draining and is a roller coaster, right? And so having a community of friends who are sort of also in the trenches is everything. Um, and then three, we wanted to be a place of learning. And we said, all right, well, uh, we'll bring in university professors from, from you know, big you know, top universities and have them come and sort of do lectures on um, interesting topics related to design or entrepreneurship or whatever. And uh, part of the thinking was we'll also bring in practitioners 
So web developers, designers, you know, digital marketers, what have you, who don't have a big name behind them at all, but um, are really good at what they do for a living. And we'll have them, as practitioners, teach their practice, teach their craft. And pretty quickly, that first vision, we realized, all right, well, that's not going to work. Part of it works, part of it works for sure, but the part, the part that didn't work around the learning and education pillar was that um, nobody wanted to uh, hear from professors who st were studying a field when they came to General Assembly. Um, if they were going to a school and going to university, that was you know, the place for that. But what we found was that in a, in a busy city, when people have their careers and their lives, um, they wanted to come to General Assembly to learn from practitioners to get better at a skill or to learn a whole new skill that can advance their career. And so the only thing people wanted to learn from, the only people that people want to learn from was practitioners. And so we realized, oh, well, right, then let's keep, let's do more of that. And then a couple years later, we realized, you know what, this desk rental thing, this sort of co-working model where we're renting desks to startups, um, by that time, lots of other co-working spaces for startups had come into existence and sort of were, were you know, pursuing a similar model to us in that regard and realize, all right, this co-working thing is sort of bringing in some revenue, but it's ultimately a distraction from the greater vision and our greater sort of opportunity to create a whole new kind of educational institution that can transform people's lives around the world. And realize, all right, if someone's taking a, a three-month course with us and going from zero to employable web developer and then getting a job, that's far more transformative and far more powerful than someone renting a desk from us for three months. Yep. You know, and so we actually shut down our co-working business as we were growing and focused entirely on education and community and, um, and then sort of kept expanding from there. You know, so it, 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 and it continues to evolve. Like we continue to see like our, enter our enterprise business now at General Assembly working with big companies has taken off over the last few years in ways that when we were first starting, we almost shut it down. Like I was, I was sort of leading our enterprise executive education pilot and it was precarious in early days. And we almost just turned it off. It's like, well, this is a waste of time. But I'm glad we did it now because it's a huge part of our business, you know? So a lot of it is just like learning, having, having a, and a vision, but be willing to evolve that over time as you learn and as you uh, see, you know, the bigger opportunities at hand. One of the things I think that kind of is an undertone there is you, you're a very purpose-led entrepreneur and a very purpose-led businesses that you've set up. Mm -hmm. There's this tension for me around, you know, doing or building something that you love and this notion of uh, doing or building something you can scale. Mm -hmm. How did they kind of play out in the General Assembly context? Yeah, so we have a, a handful of work values that we that we uh, wrote down and kind of have codified at General Assembly. And one of them is the first time is always handmade. And for us, that means uh, when you're first trying something or building something or getting a new initiative off the ground or, or whatever, it's totally okay and it's actually a good thing for it to be totally manual and handmade and imperfect and not automated and not optimized and not software-based, right? As long as you can get the job done, even if it's, you know, humans doing it all, that's fine. That's a good thing um, because it's, it's a lot easier to get that started and, and also when you have humans who are creating the thing, and you have humans who are your customers or users, turns out there's actually quite a bit of empathy there, and you can really understand a lot of the nuances of what's working and what people love what versus what they don't love and, and whatnot. And then once you figure out what works, then you can say, okay, so this thing that you know uh, Sally keeps having to do five times in a row every day, let's automate that. Right? And this email that Bob always has to send out, like, let's automate that. And you can sort of keep building things. but. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there's this there's this tension. I think some entrepreneurs come in 
or when they're starting, starting a business and saying, all right, I, I want to build something that scales, right? Build something that can reach a million people, 10 million people, whatever. And, um, you know, I think that's probably the more common approach to start that way. But what I found, you know, at least in my entrepreneurial adventures, is um, scaling something that people don't love is a huge waste of time and money. And you're really just kicking the can down the road. Like, it's far, far better to build something that people are obsessed about, even if it's clunky and looks un totally unscalable. Like, it, it's... The table stakes are for a successful company is people have to be not everybody, but there has to be enough people who are obsessed with your thing, with your product, in order for you to be able to um, when you do scale it, when you do figure out how to scale it, that it actually works, right? Because you could scale something that people are sort of meh about, and uh, and you're not going to get customers. You know, there's this um, thing with NPS, Net Promoter Score. It's basically this, this sort of question that we use all the time to get a sense of how our, our customers and users at General Assembly are interacting relating to the product. And so you ask, um, how likely are you, or to, how, how likely are you, the user, on a scale of one to ten, to recommend um, this thing, this course, or this workshop, or the product or service, or whatever, is to you know a friend. Ten being absolutely, hundred percent. One being absolutely not. I will actually tell people to stay away. And um, what I found time and time again is that products and services that fall between the sort of like three to eight range, meaning people are sort of just uh, somewhat indifferent. Maybe they're not. They, they're, you know, they're not. A, they're not a huge fan. Um, they're sort of indifferent to it, right? They don't have a strong op opinion either way. Those products do not get shared or discussed at all. There's no sort of viral loop, or there's no word of mouth effect at all for those things. Um, the products and services that uh, consistently hit sort of ones and twos, right, might be like that terrible airline who canceled your flight and like put you in the back or whatever and your seat didn't fold down. You know, we all have those stories, right? And, and you know, those are the ones, that the, the experiences, the products or experiences that you have that are just terrible, those are the ones people talk about. But then also the products and services that are so good, that are so mind-blowing, that are so special, mm. you know, in this product-laden world we live in, that, that um, you're just absolutely love. Like, this is the best thing in this category that I've experienced. Those are the ones that people talk about. So if you build a product that people don't love, that they just like, I'd say it's a waste of time. Build something else. It kind of probably segues from what you've talked about there, but one of the things that really strikes me about what Matt's done over the course of his career is you have cultivated community so well. Um, at GA, it's a core feature of what everyone raves about. It's not just the learning quality, but the community of like-minded people that they meet doing the courses. And then with Daybreak, and some of you have probably caught up with what Daybreak is. I mean, how would you best describe it? Sober, early morning dance parties in 22 <laughs> cities around the world. It's probably the most like succinct pitch I can yep. give. It's quite yep. an extraordinary phenomenon. I encourage you to watch the videos online if you haven't already. Um, people rave about your products and there's this connected sense. I'd, I'd love to get a sense from you on not just obviously the quality of product, build something that people love, mm -hmm. but how do you get, uh, how do you build a community effectively? What have you learned about cultivating community? Mm -hmm. So it's probably a, a whole uh, longer talk on how to build community successfully, but some of the things that I've learned. Um, let's see, first, first and foremost, um, you have to um, establish a set of core values that you want your community to live by, then you have to practice what you preach. So at, at Daybreaker, prior to launching our first event, uh, we, we, my co-founder and I said, okay, you know, the, 
the format of this event might change, the music might change, the style, the time, all these different aspects of the sort of community and the experience might change. But we're going to come up with uh, five core principles and never veer from those. And any, every, every decision in the future, we're going to m sort of map against those core community principles and, uh, and these principles we're going to kind of put out very front and center and say, uh, if you also want to participate in these values, if you also want to attend our events and be a part of this community because you appreciate and ad adhere to these values too, then come on in. If these values are not for you, then the community is not for you. And so like, the value, values-driven community, I think, is the most powerful thing, right? Um, you have communities that exist because of people's skin color. You have communities that exist because of people's uh, neighborhood, right? And these are communities, right? But, but the, what pulls people together, um, I think, in, in many ways, are more superficial than values-driven community. Mm -hmm. So for Daybreak, for example, you know, the five values we came up with were camaraderie, uh, wellness, mindfulness, self-expression, and mischief. And so I'll give you an example of when we had to make a tough decision. Um, we had a, a, uh, a beverage, a non-alcoholic, but, um, but heavily sugar-laden and unhealthy uh, beverage um, come to us and said, we want to do a big six-figure sponsorship and bring you to all these college campuses. And there'll be a whole thing. We'll put our million Twitter followers on it, whatever. And... Um, and the beverage was just, was absolutely not healthy, and it was not in the direction of wellness at all. And all of the uh, the bar, if you will, all the food and beverage that we offer at all of our Daybreaker events were very stringent about it. Like there's no there's no like overly sugary um, drinks or like anything that's bad for you, because that's part of the the staying pure, staying pure, and staying true to our to our values. And so we turned down this big sponsorship deal. Which ultimately, I think, was a great thing because money will come and go, but the trust mm. that you establish when you say, we are a values-driven community, we are going to be straight with you, you might not agree with these values, but these are the values we're telling you, these are our values, and we're going to straight, honest and true to these day in and day out, that gives people something where they can trust you and they can come in and let their guard down. And because we've been pure and stayed true to those, those values and and ultimately turn down, you know, a quick buck, mm. right, with this sugary beverage company for the long-term trust and maintenance of something that is pure, as pure as possible, I think is so crucial. You know, as we know in relationships and life and in politics and all this stuff, you know, that trust is so easily broken but, but so hard to, to maintain. So, um, so the values piece is, is important. And then the other, another, another sort of big uh, lesson that I would share is... When you're, when you're bringing together a community and you have a lot of new people coming in, um, there's this sort of secret agent strategy that I've found to be very effective. Uh, and Daybreaker is another good example there. So we had a lot of new people coming into Daybreaker, right? You didn't really know what this was all about. Like, all right, it's this party, it's in the morning, and you know, people get their juice, their coffee or something, and the DJ's playing, and the, the, it, we're 10 minutes in, and nobody's on the dance floor. Everyone's kind of standing around the outside. And so this, the secret agent strategy is basically we had probably about 10 fanatics who we were new, we were close with, and um, they they were sort of like super, super daybreakers. And we would say, okay, look, we know you guys are into this, and you'll follow us to the moon and back. Uh, here's what we need. At the beginning of every daybreaker, as the music starts, we need you to just go onto the dance floor and just start breaking it down. Just start just getting after it, dancing crazily. Dance like 2x the level of 
crazy <laughs> as normal. And so all these 10 people start getting in there and just like having a blast. And all of a sudden, five minutes later, the entire dance floor is filled up and all the wallflowers were sort of waiting for the trigger point. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, well, those people are going nuts. Like, I won't dance. That, I'll dance half as crazy as them, <laughs> which is fine. It's plenty. But it's good. It's good enough, you know? Yeah. And so all of a sudden, start to trigger the social pressure where very, very quickly it became uh, – not, it, it, was, it was no longer awkward to be the first person on the dance floor because some people had already just broken that wall. But then pretty within 10 minutes, it became weird and awkward to just be on the edge not dancing. It's like everyone around you is dancing. Better be normal and dance, you know? Um, and, so, and so what I found is, is like with community, you know, people, there's, you know, you can sort of play with social pressure, right? Um, but, but, but carefully and, and like in the right direction, right? These are powerful tools once you start to like understand the sociology of this stuff. Um, and it can obviously be taken the wrong way if, the, if you have the wrong intentions. But having people who are your early adopters who will, who will um, break through the awkwardness and make it okay for everyone else to follow along uh, is a really powerful thing when, when creating experience or community. I love that. Mischief yeah. and the secret agent strategy. Yeah. We knew that was what you were coming to hear yeah. about tonight, hey? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you know a lot of people coming together in your communities. I mean, one of your core jobs as uh, a founder and starting these businesses is pulling the right people in mm -hmm. to do the core jobs. And I think particularly in those early stage, those people uh, you know probably have an even more significant impact than they do when you're 20, 50, 100 plus people and then, and then some. How do you work out who you need on the bus? Uh, what, what I'll say in the beginning is most of my entrepreneurial endeavors I've started with people I've already been friends with. There are pros and cons to that. I, both, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it always. The thing about starting something, starting a, a, a venture with someone, is, is kind of like getting married. You're basically signing up um, to either have a horrible breakup because things end early and the endeavor doesn't work out, or if things do work out, um, you're basically going to be spending a significant amount of your time with this person or persons uh, for many years. You know, like, like startups, um, I also do some early stage investing and, you know, you're, you're assuming five to 10 years founding to exit, right? So if things don't go well, it's a shorter amount of time usually and it's a big messy and, and potentially like economically difficult breakup. But if things do go well, it means that you're spending five to ten years of your life in the trenches going through an emotional roller coaster with one or two or three people. So it's a pretty serious endeavor yeah. either way, right? And you have to be cognizant of that. So what are your uh, criteria for marriage? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, what's tricky is that, is that usually when you're first starting something with someone, if you, if you haven't been friends with them for a while, you don't know what they're like when they're under serious stress and you also don't know what they're like when they're really angry. And they don't know what you're like when you're really angry. And so this can be, you know, this might be weird sort of to say loud, but I, it's worth doing. Um, if you're really serious about starting a venture with someone, have a conversation with the other person and talk about what each of you are like at your worst and most difficult moments. How are, how are you, what do you like, how do you act when you're angry? Like what, what are your most fickle and annoying traits that people say that they really have problems with. And then flip it and you say that to the other person. But like, it's, and it's, it sounds strange to sort of imagine that conversation, but the more that you can be really raw and open about sort of, okay, what makes, what are the things that make you crazy? And then I'll talk about all the things that make me crazy. Uh, 
and what are what are what are what do we look like and how do we show up when we're at our worst? Mm. That conversation rarely ever happens. It's so easy. Like most people talk all the time about their strengths, mm. right? But to be really open and honest about your weaknesses and how you those show up and manifest um, allows you to then decide, ooh. That weakness that this person just shared, like, I don't want to deal with that for the next 10 years. I was going to ask right? you, how do you know but, when it's too much crazy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that, that's, that's for each person to sort of determine. Because yeah. um, everybody has their crazy. Everyone has their struggle, their weaknesses, and, and doesn't look good when they're angry and whatever. And so you have to sort of first identify and unearth what, the, what your potential partner is like when they're at their, their worst moments. And they go from there. The other thing that I'll say is... Try to find uh, co-conspirators who share a personal mission and values, as well as um, a shared understanding of what success looks like, but yet have a, a different and complementary skill set to you, right? So those are three things, right? So number one is, do they live their life according to similar value? Again, I didn't make the values piece. Similar values to you. You know, do you ultimately care not about not about business, just about life and like how you want to show up as a human? Do you ultimately care about and have the same and have it not exactly the same, but like have enough overlapping values and mission in life? Like what does it mean to you to be a good person? What is a happy life? What is a meaningful life mean to you? And like have that conversation. And if you're lying there, that's great. That's step one. Um, step two is what does success look like? Talk about what success looks like if this company X that you're starting sort of paint a picture, all right, it's 10 years from now, um, and it's really successful. Okay, then each of you share what that picture looks like for each of you, right? For one person, it might be what success looks like, right? It might be, I'm running my own company, I have all the freedom in the world, I get to travel, um, I have um, 30 employees, I love all of them, I know their families, I have an amazing lifestyle. Someone else, for the same you know, early stage idea of a company might say, uh, I want 3,000 employees and I want to have great, you know, big name venture capitalists um, invested in me and I want to be a unicorn and I want to have 10 million users and I want to be on the path to uh, getting acquired and then working at Google. And like, those are opposite success stories, right? And, and it's really important that you talk about that and make sure that your version of success, their version of success is very similar because otherwise you're going to be driving toward, you know, the company is going to go in one direction or the other or neither, but whatever direction is going to go, one of you is going to be unhappy, even if it's successful by one person's definition, mm. you know? So that's, I think, super important that most founders assume that the other founder has the same definition of success, but more often than not, they don't. Um, and then the last piece where you want to differ is um, your, your skill set, right? So it's easy and it's comfortable to look for a co-founder who looks like you, thinks like you, like you, talks like you, you can have an easy conversation, you know all the insider lingo, and you really sort of get along professionally. But I think that's, um, that can be a crutch, and ultimately you'll, you'll find yourself stepping on each other's toes. And the whole point of having a co-founder is, I think it's kind of like Captain, remember Captain Planet? Remember there was like, either there was like, the, there was like the fire guy and like the wind girl who always sneezed and, and everyone had their own superpower and they put all their rings together and it was sort of like with their powers combined, they could create something far greater than themselves, mm. right? And so that's the crucial thing. It's like find someone who has a, who's like skill set. You're like, I have no idea how you're so good at that, but I respect it and I appreciate it and I need you on my team because I'm terrible at that. Mm. And they should feel the same for you. You know, like you need to have res just mad respect 
for the skill set that your co-founder or co-founders has and knowing that like it's not your skill set at all, but they should also have the same respect for you, what you're great at, what your superpower is, they should probably have very little of. And if you do that, then then you know you won't have over, you won't have um, overlapping skills, right? You'll you'll sort of have a broader domain of powers within your company from the beginning. So that's sort of one aspect of people you're putting your, your faith in. I wanted to touch on the funding side. You've yeah. both gone and sought early stage funding, and you now fund uh, early stage ventures as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it is that early stage venture capital is looking for in a great business, a great idea, a great founder? I spent about a quarter of my time uh, working on this thing called The Fund. And The Fund is an early stage sort of community-powered um, venture fund where all the capital is, is sourced from uh, about 80 successful entrepreneurs in New York City. And we sort of pooled our capital and resources and invest to support the next generation of entrepreneurs in New York City. So sort of founders supporting founders kind of thing. Over the last, probably since February, I think we've looked at about 250 deals, um, 250 companies. We've reviewed our diligence in some way, and uh, we've done about 23 investments. So come across a lot of things. One of the, one of the biggest, a few, I guess a few of the biggest pitfalls that I see in the early, earliest stage, right? We, we invest, like, we try to be one, you know, we invest in the, the first round that the company has. So usually, you know, um, pre-seed or seed rounds, right? Um, Common errors and mistakes um, that entrepreneurs make at that early stage. Number one, uh, lack of trying to do too much, trying to boil the ocean, right? Lack of lack of focus. Um, so an entrepreneur will say, "We're building this thing, and and we're going to sell it to corporations, and we have this consumer arm, and um, you know we're also going to do this distribution strategy, and it's 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 hard enough to build one product and sell it to one kind of customer." Um, you try to, you know, that's like pulling a rabbit out of, out of a hat, right? So you try to have multiple products and sell them to multiple kinds of customers in, from day one. You're pulling three or four or five different rabbits out of the hat. That's, you're guaranteed to fail. And VCs know, know this. Like you, it's far better to be really good at one thing and just nail it at one thing. And once you're the best at that, then you can start to think, all right, we were nailing this thing. We've been nailing it for a while. Now let's start to think about nailing a second thing. But it's guaranteed impossible to try and nail like three different things at once, for, especially for different audiences. So don't don't go there. I also find that um, a lot of con- a lot of entrepreneurs try to raise money before they have something that has shown that it works, or they try to go for institutional money, right? So you know sometimes you need to kind of cobble together what they call friends and family money, which I actually also think is a little bit of like a weirdness misnomer. How many people have friends and family who can? collectively pour like hundreds of thousands of dollars into your startup, you know, and just believe in you that much. Like you must have some pretty well-off friends and family. <laughs> like, you know, maybe get a friend, give you like 500 bucks or something, right? But like, how do you add a zero to that? What I find is uh, you have to build something that is, that, it, that works. I, d- it doesn't have to have revenue, but it helps. Show that at least there's some group of people who are obsessed with it. It's far better to have, show that certain, some people are obsessed than a lot of people think it's okay. You know, so that's what that's what I'd recommend. Um, and then, and then the third thing I'd say is, a lot of times I'll come across startups who are building a tech company. They're building a, a software-based product, and they don't really have any engineers on the team. <laughs> and it's sort of like well, there's so many things to build. There's so many problems to solve. You know, like you're not an engineer. You don't know how to build software. Um, your teammates don't know how to do that. And you think like, oh, we'll just bring on like a dev shop. 
Um, but if your product is software and it's something deeply tech, then find like some engineers to join your team and to believe in you and to build this with you, or else build something else. You know, and there's this whole new category of, of um, sort of tech-enabled businesses, right? That sort of rely on software, but whose product is not explicitly software, right? So um, my fiance Whitney actually has a, a company that's um, that's sort of reimagining how we how we consume furniture in the modern age. And she's working with a dev shop, and they're building the e-commerce site, a lot of the back-end systems, right? And that's, you know, the technology is there to enable the business, right? But it's not the core product. Um, and I think that's a, that's a key thing. Like, it's a weird, I can't tell me how many times you know, the tech companies have no um, technologists or engineers, mm. you know, on, on the team. Flag. Yeah. And it's, always, it's one of those things that, like, it, that immediately shuts down a conversation with any, with any VC. You know, like, what, the real question you have to ask is, are we... Whoever your team is, are we like the best team that we know of to go out and solve this particular problem? And that has to, you know, for early stage investing, um, investors will, there's not a lot to invest in, right? It's like maybe you have a prototype that some people are really into, but the prototype is probably not perfect and it breaks half the time, but at least it's something. Uh, but really what they're investing in is, uh, is the team, right? And the idea is nice. But more importantly, is this the best possible team to go after this idea? You could have a great idea and a great market opportunity and all these things, but if your team is not showing that it's uh, the team who's going to go through the trenches and, mm. and you know, take it to the finish line, to make a weird mixed metaphor, um, <laughs> then the, the bigness of the idea and the market opportunity and everything else falls by the wayside. That's a great reality check question, I think, to look in the mirror and say, can I answer that honestly and say, we are the best team to go and tackle this problem. One final thing I wanted to touch yeah. on before we hand control over, though, is um, just the challenge of the entrepreneurial journey in itself. You know, you talked about the roller coaster before. You're also in a relationship with an entrepreneur, so it's probably two times the roller coasters. How do you actually manage uh, your energy, get the support that you need to be able to have the sort of entrepreneurial journey that you've had? Um, that's a, it's a great question. Uh, I'll be very honest with, with this room, because um, I think honesty, especially founder honesty, is, is um, vital for all of our health and the, the health of, this, of the global entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, for the last few months, uh, I have been like up to here with emails and to-dos and tasks, uh, and it, fe it feels like they just keep filling up and I can tackle five, but then 10 more come in, and I tackle five more and 10 more come in. Um, and it's been stressful and overwhelming the last few months. And I'm figuring out how to deal with that and, and sort of make it all work. Uh, and I think a lot of founders, if you, if you sit down one-on-one -on -one with, with, let's say, with successful founders, um, that rarely goes away. You know, like I, we sold General Assembly um, to a deco uh, this summer. And um, I'm no longer involved in the day-to-day -day of the company anymore. So you think like, oh, we just sold this company, you know, for a big number, you know, like you're free, do whatever you want. Why are you so stressed? Um, but that's just the way it is. And I have like lots of other things going on and, and you know, I'm, I continue to be an entrepreneur um, and just, you know, generating an outcome and, um, and, you know, flashy headlines don't change the stress levels or the emotional, the emotional work is work that has to be done on a personal level. You know, um, and so I find it sort of fascinating that you know you talk to you you know run into entrepreneurs, and oftentimes you ask like, "How's it going?" 
and they're, they're always like, oh, I'm crushing it. And I just closed this deal. And like, I'm talking to this VC. And like, this is happening. And I'm hiring this person. And all entrepreneurs are always crushing it all the time. Most, the vast majority of startups fail, which means that most entrepreneurs are actually mostly not crushing it most of the time, which means right, that there's this sort of cognitive dissonance between truth and honesty and reality and the facade that all of us as founders feel like we have to wear. And it's a real, there's reasons behind it, right? Because if you're that founder who says, oh yeah, like I'm having a huge fight with my co-founder and like I'm running out of money and my product doesn't work and that guy I thought was an engineer is not really an engineer, right? And like you share the honest truth, that's going to get back to VCs, that's going to get back to your board, like it's going to get back to people, you know, it's a tight-knit community, any entrepreneurial community is tight-knit, right? So you don't want to do that, right? Because then nobody will work for you and nobody will invest in you. So it's this weird catch-22, and I don't have the perfect solution. You know, what, what I think the more, the, in general, like the more that founders can um, acknowledge that all of us are going through similar shit, the more that we can all sort of acknowledge that this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, that it's tough, that there's ups and downs, and support each other in that way. Um, and, and even, even I found... Um, Rather than asking uh, if, I'm, if I run into a founder friend that I know, rather than saying, how are you doing, which will elicit positive sound by one, positive sound by two, positive sound by three, instead I'll say, how are you feeling, to encourage them to speak from here. Or after a minute or two of them saying their positive sound bites, I'll say, all right, so what are you struggling with? And just that question, asking people, what are you struggling with? I guarantee you, most often than not, uh, more often than not, it breaks down, it allows them to, to first take a breath. And say, oh, okay, you're a human. I'm a human. Like, thank you. Like, and they and they're willing to share if it's if it's not in, on stage or in a big group or something. You're sort of one on one, having a coffee or a meal or whatever. Um, just asking, listening, you know, asking the person what they're struggling with allows them to share the thing that they might not have been able to talk to their team about, that they might not have been able to talk to their significant other about, but that if you know they can talk to a fellow entrepreneur about because you probably can can relate. You know, so ask people what they're struggling with. Be supportive in that way, um, and you know, if you feel like you're not crushing it most of the time, welcome to everybody. Matt <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I uh, were talking earlier about how we've got to kind of break through this cult of busyness. You know, when we yeah. ask people how they are and they say, I, "I'm busy," and I love that notion of how you're feeling, but then I can imagine you get just good back. So I like that second question around what are you struggling with because it kind of you know it forces the conversation to move beyond that a little bit and get a little deeper, which I yeah. think is really cool. Yeah. Coming to an end of our time with Matt, I think it's been a really phenomenal conversation. We've touched on such a wide array of topics and one of the things I really appreciate about what Matt shared is just how pragmatic and honest you've been. I think it's very refreshing to hear founders talk with such, um, such clarity and realness about what they've been through. So thank you so much for that. If you could leave people with a, a final bit of takeaway advice, what would, what would that be? If you're thinking about being an entrepreneur and creating a venture of your own um, and pursuing you know, something big and, and running a business, I would encourage all of you to look around the world and find the really hairy problems, the really difficult problems that there's a problem that everybody has and everyone knows what the problem is, and then and they go out and uh, build and invent a solution that nobody's thought about. So find a problem that everybody has, everybody considers, and then go invent a solution that nobody's even considered. Part two of that is, you know, there's so many, 
there's so many companies out there I see that are that are receiving a lot of investment and um, are you know charging away, and the problem that they're solving is a menial one, or or even like the solution of like what good looks like is not really making the world a better place. And we are in a, I think, a very interesting and precarious and, and difficult time in the world. And we just don't have the, we just can't afford to have our best and brightest people who are being entrepreneurs pursuing problems that are, that don't matter or building companies that are not moving the world forward. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like a waste of your time, a waste of your life, a waste of your brain to not do something that really moves the world forward. So whatever that means for you, you define what you know you value and what you care about, and what like moving the world forward means for you. But I just wouldn't waste your time doing anything else. Like being an entrepreneur is a struggle, and it's a, it takes your whole body and soul and mind. Uh, so like pursue something that really matters, and don't don't waste it. He hit it out. What a great note <laughs> to finish on. Hey, that's awesome. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.